You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Striped fly gets reclassified. Eurotrooper is interested in the Commonwealth of Independent States. The current state of DDoS attacks. Ukrainian hacktivists deface Russian artists' Spotify pages. Trolls amplify a musky meme. In our Industry Voices segment, Matt Howard from Virtue explains securing data at the employee edge. Our guest is Seth Blank from Valamail to discuss email security and DMARC. And while trolls might like Mr. Musk, the crooks heart Mr. Gosling. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Thursday, October 26th, 2023. Kim Zetter reports in her zero-day newsletter that the striped fly crypto miner has turned out to be more malign than previously believed. When Kaspersky discovered it in 2017, they wrote it off as a simple piece of criminal malware designed for crypto mining. They also wrote it off as uninteresting and unsuccessful, yielding its proprietors nothing more than chump change. All they got from mining Monero altcoin came to just 10 bucks in 2017 and only 500 in 2018, not enough to interest even a spoiled script kitty. Apparently, however, Striped Fly was actually interested in collecting information, not cryptocurrency. Kaspersky discovered the miner was actually a cover for a sophisticated spy platform that has infected more than one million victims around the world since 2017. Striped Fly seems to be a carefully designed espionage toolset that masked itself as an uninteresting stumblebum criminal operation. Zetter explains... The spy components include ones for harvesting credentials from infected machines, for siphoning PDFs, videos, databases, and other valuable files, grabbing screenshots and recording conversations through an infected system's microphone. The platform also has an updating function that lets the attackers push out new versions of it whenever Windows and Linux operating systems get updated. The malware gets pushed out from encrypted archives, stored on GitLab, GitHub, and Bitbucket. Striped Fly gains initial access to its targets through a variant of Eternal Blue, an exploit attributed to an actor Kaspersky tracks as the Equation Group. Kaspersky studiously avoids attribution to nation-state services, but the Equation Group is widely believed to be associated with the U.S. National Security Agency. Eternal Blue was blown by the shadow brokers in April of 2017, a month after Microsoft patched the vulnerability the malware was designed to support. Since then, other services, notably China's Ministry of State Security, have used variants of Eternal Blue, but it's not at all clear who's responsible for Striped Fly. It does seem clear, however, that it's an espionage operation and not a low-grade criminal caper. In the espionage world, it usually pays to be underestimated. In more cyber espionage news, 
Researchers at Cisco Talos yesterday published the conclusions of their investigation of Eurotrooper, a cyber espionage operation that focuses on the Commonwealth of Independent States, the organization of former Soviet republics who haven't yet been invaded and who retain more or less voluntary ties to Russia. Eurotrooper has been active since June of last year. Cisco Talos thinks Eurotrooper is based in Kazakhstan, but that it seeks to leave a false trail designed to misrepresent itself as an operation run from Azerbaijan. It uses, for example, Kazakh VPN exit nodes. Eurotrooper relies heavily on phishing to direct its victims to credential harvesting sites. This is also consistent with what ESET has observed about the group it tracks as Sturgeon Fisher. ESET regards Sturgeon Fisher as significantly overlapping Eurotrooper. Talos researchers believe that Eurotrooper is working to wean itself from commodity malware in favor of new custom malware spanning across different platforms such as Python, PowerShell, Golang, and Rust. The threat actor isn't purely devoted to offensive operations against its targets. Eurotrooper also shows a repeated pattern of defensive scanning, checking Kazakhstan's state-owned email service, mail.kz, for evidence of hostile activity. Cloudflare has published its DDoS threat report for the third quarter of 2023, finding that gaming and gambling companies were bombarded with the latest volume of HTTP DDoS attack traffic, overtaking the cryptocurrency industry from last quarter. That's not surprising. The gaming and gambling sector is particularly sensitive to anything that affects their services availability. If you can't get on to FanFight, you're likely to bounce to Sporting Bookie. It's a quick gratification clientele. When an ordinary Joe or Jane is looking for some action, they probably want it now. Cloudflare offered some interesting details. 89 hypervolumetric HTTP DDoS attacks in the third quarter of 2023 surpassed 100 million requests per second, with the largest peaking at 201 million, a figure three times higher than the previous largest attack on record. These large attacks were part of a sophisticated and persistent DDoS attack campaign that exploited the HTTP2 rapid reset vulnerability. The rapid reset campaign began in late August. The record reports that Ukrainian hacktivists compromised the Spotify pages of Russian artists who've been prominent supporters of President Putin's regime and its war against Ukraine. In this case, they appear to be freelancers, not an organized auxiliary. They replaced the artist's profile picture with a blue and yellow banner and messages urging Russia to stop war in Ukraine. The hacktivist did some bragging in Telegram channels and on Spotify, which suspended its news service into the Russian market last year in protest of the war. Spotify said at the time, We are deeply shocked and saddened by the unprovoked attack on Ukraine. But it still has some Russian users. Spotify said it quickly restored the defaced pages. Official Russian opinion seems accurately represented by singer-songwriter-propagandist Grigory Leps, one of the artists whose page was hit. Leps said through a spokesman, Spotify is not at all interesting to us. It is an enemy platform. We are on our own. Therefore, it's not at all interesting what's happening there. Mr. Leps has been under U.S. sanctions since October 2013, for his work as a money mule for the Brothers Circle criminal gang. 
The EU sanctioned him last year over his involvement with the war effort. Earlier this month, American tycoon Elon Musk began posting rude internet memes involving a flatulent teenager with Ukrainian President Zelensky's face superimposed. Wired reports that Russian accounts on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, have flocked to Mr. Musk's posts, giving them the greatest amplification they're capable of. Researchers at Cardiff University say the troll accounts have the usual marks of inauthenticity, low or zero follower numbers, a lack of identifiable personal details. They mostly just reply to other accounts' posts and produce anti-Ukraine and anti-Zelensky messaging, which mirror wider Russian narratives. Some of the trolls photoshopped Mr. Musk into a Russian uniform as a token of esteem. We can't make out the rank. We hope it's at least Starshina. And finally, McAfee Labs has updated its tally of celebrities whose names are misused by cybercriminals. Ryan Gosling is the current top banana. Mr. Musk comes in only at number six, behind Mr. Gosling, Emily Blunt, Jennifer Lopez, Zendaya, and Kevin Costner, and only just nosing out Al Roker. We have no idea what this means. Discuss amongst yourselves, but don't be surprised if a certain maverick tycoon builds himself a Barbie dream house. Maybe it could be virtually constructed in Minecraft. Talk amongst yourselves. Watch me. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The global pandemic and the shift to employees working from home 
accelerated the trend of organizations shifting their data security strategies from perimeter-centric to data-centric. Matt Howard is Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Vertrue, and in this sponsored Industry Voices segment, he explains why modern information security must protect both structured data in the cloud and unstructured data at the employee edge. You know, every organization in the world has a data estate. 20% of it, give or take, is structured, rows and columns. Increasingly, those are databases now in public cloud infrastructure. But 80% of it is in various forms of unstructured data. And, you know, if you're just beginning a journey now, getting your arms around, how do you sort of get better security posture with respect to all of this data estate? It seems like the current state of the industry right now is to focus first on governing structured data in rows and columns in the public cloud and turning some attention, but inevitably more and more over time, to getting a, a grasp, if you will, on all of the unstructured data that's sensitive to the business and inevitably leaves the business through a variety of different workflows. Do you understand the, 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 the focus that most folks have on doing their structured data first? And, and why does that come up short? Yeah, no, I totally understand it. I mean, listen, if, if you, you know, we all know how hard it is to be in the security sort of risk management business in today's world. If I'm putting myself in the shoes of the customer, I, I, I think I got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and getting a grip on structured data with regards to, you know, databases is familiar. Uh, that's data you typically possess as part of some IT uh, infrastructure, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. And it makes sense uh, as a starting place. I think the other thing that's, practically speaking, been true for the last decade plus is that everybody understands how much unstructured data is out there. Everybody understands how sensitive it is and and how it's a good idea to govern it. But if we're honest, there hasn't been a really easy, scalable way to address the unstructured data challenge historically. I think that's beginning to change. And as a result, I I think we're beginning to see kind of a rising tide. And inevitably, in the next year, two, three, four, you're going to see more and more budget, more and more attention shift from governing just structured data to absolutely prioritizing uh, governance and control and risk management with respect to the unstructured data estate. And how does this intersect with folks who have to think about things like compliance and, and regulatory regimes? Well, it's it's one of the key drivers of that rising tide I just mentioned, uh, if not the key driver, is absolutely uh, regulatory regimes and the need to comply. Uh, we could be talking about things like HIPAA. We could be talking about things like CMMC and ITAR. We could be uh, talking about things like CGIS, but any number of uh, data security, data privacy, regulatory regimes in any number of different vertical or industries, um, you know, require that organizations do a better job of governing the sensitive unstructured data that they possess and that they inevitably share with third-party customers, partners outside the organization. And it's a key driver. So to the extent that the tide is rising now, uh, compliance is a key driver. I think over time, in addition to compliance, you're going to basically see organizations just kind of continue to mature with respect to just security hygiene in general. Organizations that are on a journey to mature with respect to zero trust security controls. Um, As we know, it's a journey, not a destination. And on that journey, you'll eventually turn your attention to unstructured data as well. 
And at that point, you'll see drivers being both compliance and security. How about folks who want to have more control over the actual usage of the data itself? I mean, we we think about data that's within an organization, but even talking about data that's outside of the organization as well. Are we in a place now where that's becoming more and more practical? I mean, listen, so, so yes, absolutely. It's one thing to imagine you sharing sensitive file with uh, a partner externally via an email workflow and wanting to have governance and control over that email and that file so that you can do something like revocation or expiry. Take it back two weeks from now after you've decided you no longer want that person to have access to it. Very, very important. But also, I think really interesting is this idea of how much of our data as an organization today are we just sort of storing in public clouds like, I don't know, Google, Azure, Mm. Amazon. We store it there. We trust these large public cloud hyperscalers to essentially act as, you know, security by proxy. We hope that they do their job well. In some cases, as we saw this past summer with the State Department situation and Microsoft, it doesn't always work out that way. But nonetheless, if you are running an organization and you're storing sensitive data in a public cloud, you have to ask yourself, is it encrypted? And if it is, who holds the key? And increasingly, what we're seeing is customers say, I'm willing to store data in a public cloud but I want to be the one to hold the encryption key because I don't want the public cloud provider, Google, Amazon, or Microsoft, to potentially be in a situation where they have to, I don't know, answer to some law enforcement subpoena to decrypt the data. I want to be the one to ultimately hold the key because it's my data. And so more and more, this idea of sharing data externally and being in control of your own destiny because it's your data, it belongs to you, you should be the one that's able to Uh, determine who has access to it and who doesn't. Someone who's interested in in taking this journey and and is shopping around for providers, and any words of wisdom on the types of questions they should be asking? Yeah, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, I think open standards matter. Um, I, I think if you're not careful, you can kind of find yourself in a situation where you're, you know, subject to vendor lock in almost accidentally. You know, if you're if you're really sort of thinking about your longer term strategy as it relates to a zero trust security transformation, and you're looking at your entire data uh, estate and you're wanting to kind of view it holistically, you'll obviously have a a collection of strategies and vendors and technologies that you can employ to govern your structured data discovery, classification, tagging, and protection by proxy. You'll have another path to kind of explore with regard to really granular controls. Uh, that can be applied to these unstructured data workflows, like the like the type that we just spoke about. Uh, obvious uh, for my for my two cents. I mean, my company Virtue certainly plays uh, very strongly in the unstructured data portion of that uh, that journey. And uh, you know, we just encourage folks to kind of keep an open mind with an emphasis on open standards. And then, probably most importantly, I think it'd be important to kind of really pressure test vendors with respect to, you know, who's been there and done it and can vouch, you know, for their competencies, not by virtue of anything they say, but more importantly, what customers have to say. That's Matt Howard from Virtue. Both Google and Yahoo recently announced that they're upping their game when it comes to email security. 
that by February of 2024, they're essentially going all in on DMARC. For an explanation of what that means, I spoke with Seth Blank, Chief Technology Officer at Zero Trust Email Authentication Provider, Valamail. DMARC stands for Domain-Based Message Authentication, Reporting, and Conformance, which is a mouthful. Uh, there will not be a test at the end of this podcast. <laughs> um, but DMARC overlays uh, SPF, which is Sender Policy Framework, and DKIM, which is Domain Keys Identified Mail, and makes it, it takes them from sort of machine-to-machine anti-spoofing technologies to actual machine-to-human anti-fraud technologies. And the way that works, to give you a really simple um, overview at 50,000 feet, is SPF's effectively a whitelist. Hey, I send mail from these systems that emit from these IPs. And that works great if you run your own network, have your own mail servers, but they're awful in a shared services world. If you're sending through MailChimp or or Marketo or Microsoft, everyone and their mom sends through those IPs too. And so SPF isn't as helpful uh, or is not helpful at all. DKIM uses PKI. We sign a message. And so when you receive the message, you can actually use the DNS to figure out, to, to find the public key. And you can go, great, this message was actually sent by this domain and the message has not been tampered with in transit. The problem with both of these is that what they authenticate is not necessarily what is shown to the user. And so DMARC introduces, right, there are those three letters towards the end, right, the concept of alignment. And alignment means what is authenticated is what is shown to the user. So with SPF or DKIM, I can say, I am Fisher.com. I authenticate as Fisher.com. And then I tell the recipient, I'm Dave Bitner. With DMARC, you cannot do that. That message would fail alignment. It's not authenticating what's shown to the user. Uh, and we're explicitly talking about the domain name in use, not the actual text shown to the user. DMARC also gives you a report so you can see what is happening in your name uh, under the name of that domain globally so that you have this unparalleled visibility. Like this has never existed in email before. You can see globally what's happening in your name. And you know, we talk to CISOs all the time and the first DMARC report they, they see almost invariably the, the words out of their mouth are, I can't unsee this. Because you just have no idea the amount of just garbage being sent as everyone to everyone. Uh, and then DMARC lets you, the third thing, uh, conformance, lets you set policy and said, and you get to say, for mail, sent as me, if I haven't authenticated, I want you to straight up reject it or send it to spam. And so you finally, with DMARC, get control. And what this has done is DMARC has proven its mettle as being the truly powerful anti-fraud tool. And it's become increasingly mandated. Um, and it's becoming this, you know, it is frankly like having a TLS cert for your website. You just need it. It's sort of that bare minimum bar. Uh, and it's been a best practice for a decade but it's never been truly required outside of government mandates until now. 
So what, what is the, the shift that's happening now? We, we've got some big players here who are uh, taking a, a fresh approach to DMARC? Exactly. So we have Google and then Yahoo and uh, several other people in the industry who will be coming out over the next few weeks and months who will be subscribing to the same set of policies. And effectively, what they're saying is the core concepts of DMARC, that authentication must be aligned with the from domain, right? What is being displayed to the user um, is paramount. And if you do not have aligned authentication, it doesn't count. And then they're requiring people have a DMARC policy of at least uh, P equals none, which is effectively you can get reports, but you're not saying yet what to do with unauthenticated mail. And, and what this does is it means that we can now tell as an email ecosystem who is sending the mail, or, or more accurately, that when a user is looking at their inbox, the mail is from who it says it's from. Uh, and that's foundationally different. And it's taking, again, a decade of best practice and making it requirement that businesses do the hard work to authenticate their mail so that users cannot be deceived. If I'm a security professional, you're responsible for defending my organization. How is this going to affect me? So I think this is powerfully effective. You know, my, my hope is this is really meaningful to the security professional. Uh, DMARC has become increasingly a tool that security professionals have tried to implement, but there's been resistance. And the question has been, why now? Why this over other approaches, right? Uh, security professionals are inundated with the stats, the, the FBI damages of last year, there was $43 billion due to BEC. This year, the FBI reported $50 billion in damages, right? That's $7 billion in damages due to BEC over the last year alone. Uh, DMARC's part of that, not all of it. There has been the Verizon data breach report since 2016 going 91% of all cyber attacks start from email year after year after year, but the problem's getting bigger. And the effectiveness of IT teams to even take on DMARC as a project has been really low. Um, the market stats we look at uh, show only a 13.5% effectiveness of people actually getting protection from DMARC. And so the hope is this has changed the conversation from a pure project that IT would like to take on, that security would like to take on, to a necessity for the business that creates a significant security win for the business in the process. And then opens up other doors, especially if you're in a business to consumer and a B2C setting, where you can get a lot more ROI from marketing on top of it as well. That's Seth Blank from Valamail. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Ivan. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.